0: Today is Wednesday, November the 2nd, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, www.prn.live. That's prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Amazon is building a new factory in the Seattle suburb of Kirkland, Washington, to support manufacturing of its Project Kuiper internet satellites. Project Kuiper is Amazon's plan to launch 3,000-plus internet satellites into low-Earth orbit to extend high-speed broadband internet access around the globe. Amazon said it will open a new plan in a Seattle suburb to build satellites for Project Kuiper. Unveiled in 2019, Project Kuiper is... Amazon's plan to build a network of 3,236 satellites in low-Earth orbit to provide high-speed broadband Internet. In 2020, the Federal Communications Commission authorized Amazon to operate the satellite Internet system. In order to meet its target of getting 3,000-plus satellites into orbit, Amazon needs to build one to three satellites every single day. They have to first build the manufacturing capabilities that looks more like consumer electronics or automobiles, and less like traditional space industry. Although Amazon has not said when the Kuiper launch campaign will begin, FCC rules require the company to deploy half of its planned satellites within six years. Amazon had said its plans. To invest more than $10 billion into building Project Kuiper, and it already has a 219,000-square-foot research and development facility based in Redmond, Washington. The Redmond site has developed prototypes and assisted with commercial satellite production, but Amazon said they need to operate on a much larger scale. The new 172,000-square-foot factory will be located in the nearby city of Kirkland, Washington. It's expected to create more than 200 jobs in the Puget Sound region. The addition of plant capacity will enable Amazon to enter the second phase of its manufacturing process. Since receiving FCC approval, Amazon has ramped up work on its first two prototype satellites called Kuiper one and KuiperSat 2 Amazon said in November of 2021 that it hoped to launch those prototypes with ABL Space on its RS-1 rocket in late 2022. But earlier this month, Amazon said United Launch Alliance would carry the satellites on their debut flight, delaying the launch to early next year. Amazon has started integration and final assembly of its first two prototype satellites, and it should be completed by the end of this year. Amazon Internet Satellite Service will be in direct competition to SpaceX Spacelink Internet Service. The global low-Earth orbit, otherwise known as LEO, satellite's market size is expected to grow. Growing demand for telecommunications drove the growth of the low-Earth orbit satellite's market. Satellite links are the primary means of connectivity to remote and far flung regions of a country, and they are the backup links for a large number of terrestrial connectivity services on the mainland. They can distribute signals from one point to many locations. As such, satellite technology is ideal for point-to-multipoint communications, such as broadcasting. For example, in 2022, companies such as SpaceX, Amazon, OneWeb, and Telsat announced the launch of large systems of low-Earth orbit satellites to provide internet access, these LEO constellations could help bridge the digital divide, particularly in rural regions. Comcast wants internet users to pay more because customers' growth has stored. New signups are scarce, and Comcast has a problem it isn't signing up many new broadband customers. But Comcast also has a solution. Get more money from existing subscribers. Comcast failed to add any broadband customers in the second quarter of this year, holding steady at over 32 million residential and business internet customers combined. In its last earnings report, Comcast said it gained only 14,000 broadband users in the last quarter, and Comcast also lost 561,000 video customers and 316,000 VoIP phone customers. That's why Comcast executives focused on average revenue per user. With new customers few and far between, Comcast is aiming for growth in the average amount each existing customer pays. That's a fancy way of saying they're raising the price. Comcast president CFO said they expect average revenue per user growth will continue to be the primary driver of their residential broadband revenue growth in the near term. Comcast could get more customers by expanding into new territory or by connecting homes in neighborhoods where some people are stuck without broadband, even though their neighbors have Comcast internet service. But Comcast seems content to stick with its current territory and often refuses to provide new hookups unless the homeowners pay thousands of dollars up front. So Comcast's CEO doesn't expect much subscriber growth. The nation's largest cable company is still in a challenging environment in terms of depressed move activity and increased competition from new entrants. Comcast said there are four primary drivers of growth in Comcast's cable divisions. Residential broadband average revenue per user, wireless, and business services. While they don't anticipate residential broadband units to be a significant driver for now, they expect to maintain healthy growth in the other three, leading to continued strong financial performance at cable for the foreseeable future. Comcast discuss average revenue per user growth in suggesting that price increases help boost per user revenue. Comcast have multiple ways of getting more money from existing subscribers. That includes selling mobile plans, and Comcast also sells home security services. But Comcast suggesting they want to keep raising broadband bills, that could include increases to basic monthly rates, boost the fees that raise the cost above advertised prices, or requiring subscribers to purchase the $25 per month XFi complete add-on in order to get unlimited data and higher upload speeds. CEO of Comcast is confident they can charge more. Including all cable services, Comcast said that average monthly total revenue per customer was $160.38 in the third quarter. That's barely changed in the past couple of years, as the number sat at $158.17 back in the first quarter of 2021. Comcast is confident they can boost average revenue per user to counter the stagnating broadband customer growth and drops in video and home phone users. Comcast is already seeing a decent per-user revenue boost in cable TV thanks to price increases, despite a drop in overall revenue. Video revenue declined 4.4%, driven by year-over-year customer net losses partially offset by 6% average revenue per user growth due to a residential rate increase at the beginning of this year. They said that voice revenue declined 12.5%, primarily reflecting year-over-year customer losses. Analysts questioned this plan for higher prices. What gives Comcast confidence that they can sustain a profile of average revenue per user growth? Because there is virtually no competition against them. Comcast is a franchise cable operation with agreements with municipal localities. And as such, the number of Internet service providers in each locality is limited to compete to drive down cost of Internet service. The franchise fee is a source of income for local governments, but the lack of competition drives up cost of Internet service to consumers. The cable service operators have the advantage of lower cost compared to satellite service providers. The satellite service providers, however, have the advantage of mobile operations. Over the long term, portability will win out as evidenced by the cell phone service is preferred over the landline telephone service. How Google alerted Californians to an earthquake before it hit. People with Android phones got a notification that a trembler was about to rock Silicon Valley. Android phones around San Francisco Bay buzzed with an alert last Tuesday morning about a 4.8 magnitude earthquake was about to hit. You may have felt shaking some of the messages read. More than a million Android users saw the alert. And for some it arrived seconds before the ground even started moving. It's not the first time Android devices have received these alerts, says the Project Lead for Android Earthquake Alert System, but because the Bay Area is so densely populated, the alert hit enough phones that the larger public took notice. Earthquakes have historically come without warning, catching people off guard, and leaving them with no advance notice to drop and take cover. Alerts like this aim to take some of the unpredictability out of earthquakes, even if it's just for a few seconds. One of the things we're trying to do is build an earthquake early warning system, says Robert DeGroote, who is part of the Shake Alert operations team, a project under the United States Geological Survey that detects the first signs of earthquakes. We're doing things that we really haven't ever thought of. The tech does not predict earthquakes. No one can do that. And the USGS also says it does not think it will learn to predict earthquakes within the foreseeable future. But it does detect them earlier than people usually feel them. And the experts hope someday the alerts can be sent out even quicker, giving people more time to get out of harm's way. Last Tuesday's Android alert was powered by data from ShakeAlert, which detects when an earthquake begins on the West Coast and provides the information to state government agencies and third parties. And Google has taken steps to make that information more readily available in those precious seconds. First, the company rolled the alert into its own system, sending push notification to people with Android phones who are in the area of an earthquake without them having to download a separate app. And here's how it works. When an earthquake occurs, it sends softer seismic waves, known as P-waves, through the ground. Not everyone in the earthquake's area will feel these, but a network of 1,300 USGS sensors do. When four sensors are simultaneously triggered, they send an alert to a data processing center. If that data meets the right criteria, the ShakeAlert system determines that stronger S-waves, the kind that can cause damage, can hurt people, could be on the way. It's then that warning systems like Google's, an app called MyShake, or government agencies like the Federal Emergency Management Agency, otherwise known as FEMA, and transit systems will interpret the data and send out alerts. There are limitations. Those S-waves move quickly. The closer a person is to the earthquake, the less likely they are to get an alert before they feel the shaking. The USGS sensors are expensive and strategically placed on the West Coast. There will be a total of 1,675 of them by 2025. Also, the quickly compiled magnitude measurements are only preliminary. Last Tuesday, Android Alert warned of a 4.8 magnitude quake approaching but the measurement was later adjusted to 5.1. Google has also turned individual phones into miniature earthquake sensors, the Wu said. All smartphones have accelerometers that can pick up signals of an earthquake. If triggered, the phone sends a message to a detection server along with rough location data, like the city a device is in. The server then pieces together where the earthquake is happening from data collected on multiple phones and beams out the relevant alerts. Phones only pick up the waves when plugged in and locked. That helps to avoid confusion from phones jostling around the bags and pockets. The long-term goal is to send signals with even more speed. We're looking at trying to make the time from when an earthquake begins and the time that we detect it and send an alert as fast as possible. Equipping phones to pick up the signal is a cheaper and quicker solution than planting large sensors 10 feet underground in other earthquake-prone areas, but it's one that requires people and their phones to be present closer to the quakes. And that's not always the case. Still, all of these sensors underground and in your pocket do provide novel and unprecedented warnings and crucial seconds to drop and cover. Something people must do quickly as possible. People typically don't feel an earthquake until it's already happening. You're now in a situation where you're in the middle of it, but doing something before shaking arrives is something that's relatively new. So we're really looking at the best way to get people to do that. Well, on a personal note, my daughter called last week that she was two miles from the earthquake center, It was a register 5.1 quake. She and her work colleagues had no early warning of the shock. When I referenced this news item to her, she said, Hey, Dad, most people she knew did not get an early warning from Google. Why? She reminded me that most of her friends live in Silicon Valley and have iPhones and not Android phones. Well, It looks like the self-driving cars aren't going to happen in my lifetime. Ford, Volkswagen-backed Argo, AI is shutting down. Argo AI, an autonomous vehicle startup that burst on the scene in 2017, stacked with $1 billion investment, is shutting down. Its parts being absorbed into two main backers, Ford and Volkswagen, according to people familiar with the matter. During an all-hands meeting last Wednesday, Argo AI employees were told that some people would receive offers from two automakers, according to multiple sources, and it was unclear how many would be hired into Ford or Volkswagen and which company would get Argo's technology. Employees were told they would receive a severance package that includes insurance and two separate bonuses an annual award plus a transaction bonus upon the deal closed with Ford and Volkswagen. All Argo employees will receive these. For those who are not retained by Ford or Volkswagen, they will receive additional termination and severance pay, including health insurance. It was reported that it was a generous package, and the founders of the company spoke directly about it to more than 2,000 employees. In coordination with the shareholders, the decision has been made that Argo AI will not continue on its mission as a company. Many of the employees will receive an opportunity to continue work on automated driving technology with either Ford or Volkswagen, while employment for others will unfortunately come to an end, Argo said in a statement. Ford said its third-quarter earnings report released last Wednesday that it made a strategic decision to shift its resources to developing advanced driver assistance systems and not autonomous vehicle technology that can be applied to robo-taxis. The company said it recorded a $2.7 billion non-cash pre-tax impairment on its investment in Argo AI, resulting in an $827 million net loss for the third quarter. That decision appears to have been fueled by Argo's inability to attract new investors. Ford CEO Jim Farley acknowledged that the company anticipated being able to bring autonomous vehicle technology broadly to market by 2021. It didn't happen. Volkswagen, Argo's other primary backer, has also indicated plans to shift resources and will no longer invest in Argo AI. The company said it will use its software unit, Cariad, to drive forward development of highly automated and autonomous driving together with Bosch and, in the future, in China with Horizon Robotics. Argo was founded in 2016, and the company came out of stealth in February 2017 when Ford announced it would invest a billion dollars over five years into Argo. Since then, the company has raised more than $2.6 billion, primarily from Ford and Volkswagen, in a pursuit to develop, test, and eventually commercialize its automated driving system. The promises around commercializing AV technology have proven more difficult than expected. A wave of consolidation washed over the industry with companies folding, being absorbed into other companies, including Apple. Just last month, the company revealed an ecosystem of products and services to design to support commercial delivery and robo-taxi operations. The products, a list that includes fleet management and software, data analytics, high-definition mapping, and cloud-based communication tools, stretches far beyond the self-driving system that allows a vehicle to navigate city streets without a human driver behind the wheel. Argo appeared to be telling the world it was open for business. Although in 2016, many industry leaders expected the autonomous vehicle to be commonplace on highways in the early 2020s, this doesn't seem likely when they made their predictions. Automotive executives were likely caught up in the AI hype. Now that the conversation around AI in the enterprise is more informed, executives are walking back on their initial statements because they now understand how difficult machine learning projects are in general, let alone those for self-driving cars. It makes sense that despite the massive amounts of venture capital in the space, self-driving technology is still a long way off before they become available to people at any legitimate scale. The other consideration is that self-driving adoption timelines depend heavily on the regulatory developments in the next few years. Autonomous vehicles require both the right legal And technological frameworks. There are serious liability concerns when machines operate themselves in a potentially dangerous environment. Obviously, a car company doesn't have much incentive to mass-produce a true self-driving car if there is nowhere they can legally drive or if the legal liability they bear would be considered too risky. Regulations regarding AI are likely only going to grow in number and complexity making it difficult for companies to navigate how they use the technology. The net of all this effort is that, as I said before, the autonomous automobile is not going to happen in my lifetime. Mark Zuckerberg is all in with Metaverse. When it comes to the autonomous self-driving electric car, virtually all the major car makers have thrown in the towel. The promises around commercializing autonomous vehicle technology have proven more difficult than expected. After more than five years of development, most car manufacturers have either suspended or ended all work for a fully autonomous vehicle. It was draining massive amounts of financial capital. In the case of the metaverse, however, Mark Zuckerberg is all in. Within a 52-week period. The stock price of Meta has gone from a high of $384 a share down to $93 a share at the end of October. Mark Zuckerberg addressed his Metaverse doubters with a statement. Look, I get that a lot of people might disagree with this investment, but from what I can tell, I think this is going to be a very important thing. People will look back a decade from now and talk about the importance of the work being done here. One Wall Street analyst said, The problem is that a decade is a long time from now. Zuckerberg is losing faithful supporters quickly. I think kind of summing up how investors are feeling right now is that there are just too many experimental bets versus proven bets. The numbers are staggering. Meta Reality Labs division lost over $21 billion over a three-year period. It made only $285 million in revenues for the quarter, a nearly 50% drop attributed primarily to weaker sales of the Quest 2 headset that got a $100 price hike in August. The next version of that headset is currently planned for release in the second half of next year, and Meta just released its Quest Pro this week, a pricier $1,500 version marketed for work use cases. Mark Zuckerberg said, We do anticipate that Reality Labs operating losses in 2023 will grow significantly year over year, Meta said in its earnings press release just a few days after a large shareholder publicly pressured the company to rein in its spending. Meta's stock dropped a staggering 20% after it reported a 4% drop in revenue growth. The results show Apple's ad tracking prompt has costed over $10 billion. The advertising spending on its platform is continuing to weaken, and its stock is currently trading at a price not seen since the end of 2015. Zuckerberg is experiencing a crisis of confidence. He's betting the whole farm on Metaverse. The greater population doesn't know nor care about what is Metaverse. Technically, Metaverse is a collective virtual shared space created by the convergence of virtually enhanced physical and digital reality. And as far as the general public is concerned, those are just buzzwords with very little relevance in the real world. The metaverse is not one single digital space. It's a collection of spaces built and sustained by a variety of different entities, metaverse companies, organizations, and digital currencies and players. Although there is still a, a huge amount of investment being pumped into metaverse projects by some of the world's most powerful and influential tech companies, the hype created a year or so ago has not been sustained. The numbers show that it isn't going quite the same way as, say, the pandemic induced video conferencing boom, which seems to have a bit more staying power. According to recent reports, shares are down 62% so far this year, and the company's Horizon Worlds game is failing to live up to expectations. Decentraland's MANA tokens is off 81% year-to-date, and the active user bases of several platforms are being called into question. The Gartner Group predicts that we'll spend at least one hour a day in the metaverse by 2026, but not everyone is confident we'll be able to spend long periods of time in virtual environments. Amid economic strife, it's becoming increasingly hard to predict the fate of metaverse companies and the ecosystems of virtual environments they've recently built. What could easily collapse is the current ecosystem of metaverse companies working on projects. Large companies with various revenue streams like meta could scrap them while smaller companies might shut down. What is unlikely to change is the broad idea that as a civilization, we're going to spend increasing amounts of time in digital spaces. But they will need to be sufficiently immersive and collaborative, both from an entertainment and work perspective to make it worth our time. Meta is seeing a significant slowdown in advertising growth while embarking on an expensive, uncertain, multi-year transition to the Metaverse. Zuckerberg has bet the farm on Metaverse, and he's not backing off. Facebook is imploding. Facebook is draining money in pursuit of a Metaverse that seemingly no one wants. In a little over one year, the company has shed nearly $800 billion of its market capitalization, with most of that coming these past eight months. The company's pivot to the Metaverse complete with a name change to Meta Platforms Inc., has resulted in its hemorrhaging money while its core products, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, all seem to have very real vulnerabilities. Reality Labs, which is Facebook's metaverse fantasy team, has burned through $21 billion in three years. By all indicators, the metaverse is a wasteland. Zuckerberg promises that that this new world he's building should be ready in 10 to 15 years. Zuckerberg's obsession with the Metaverse is one major problem, but there are fundamental issues plaguing the company's core business. Meta isn't going to just be able to effortlessly maintain the massive money-printing factories that are Facebook and Instagram, and there is even reason to worry about WhatsApp's future as the world's most popular messenger. Facebook's core advertising business as flagging warning signs. Facebook warned that Apple's 2021 privacy changes to its iOS operating system, which makes it harder for third parties like Facebook to harvest data to target users. This would be a significant headwind to the tune of $10 billion in advertiser revenues this year. Apple announced yet another change that would also hit Facebook. Apple said it would consider buying ads within the Facebook app to be a digital purchase subject to Apple's App Store 30% commission. It's too early to say how much this will affect Facebook, but it will. Facebook users in the United States are aging and is specifically not being used by American teens. Instagram is regularly held up as being a lesser disaster for platform. This is a major impact for a company that once threw its weight around with confidence and attempted to monopolize as much of life outside of the Facebook app. At one point, Facebook even tried to monopolize the global monetary system with Libra, a global cryptocurrency backed by a basket of currencies and assets and Calibra. It was quietly killed by financial authorities and is sold for scraps to a bank. Meta just may be another company rather than a world-shaping monolith, having been outfoxed and outclass and wrecked by the hubris of its chief executive. The Federal Trade Commission has already sought to block Facebook acquisitions of companies that might help it build the metaverse it so desperately needs to work at this point. Facebook's miscalculation about its ability to pursue finance as a new line of business, compounded by its miscalculation about investors' patience for the metaverse as a new line of business, compounded by Apple's ability to leverage its monopoly to damage Facebook's core business, have left Facebook weaker in the markets. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell.
1: This is Benjamin Rockwell and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about a number of the different things that impact us in a number of different directions. Whether we're talking about the business world, what happens in the business world, or what happens in our own world because of business. In this case, I actually have a question from Tori. I heard that many programmers cheat and just use code from other places. All right. So before we make it, simple of an answer, I'm going to note that there is this theme on the internet. It goes like this. Everything is a remix. And if we go along, we can look at some of the different movies over the years, and we see that this is the exact same movie, The Seven Samurai, The Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven is a remix A cowboy remix of the Japanese movie, The Seven Samurai. And we see this time and time again throughout a number of different places, whether we're talking about music, where different little bits and pieces of music are repeated in many different songs all the way along throughout history. We can go and we can listen to, uh, it, there's, um, there's one, of the, uh, one of the themes from George Lucas that sounds very familiar to a classical music theme, and I can't remember which, uh, which one it was, um, whether it was Bach or Beethoven, but it, it still exists. So that idea of everything is a remix still lends to the idea of what we deal with in the computer world with programmers. Not everything that they're going to be doing, not everything that they code is going to be original. There are little snippets, little bits and pieces that programmers will pull out of various code libraries, various other references, various other questions and answers. I'll tell you, uh, me personally, I do a number of different things based on previous works that I've done. I, I will go back and I will reuse code from something I did a while back. Oh, yes, I need to, I, I need to set this particular item within this section, and I will use some VBA that I used previously, uh, five years ago. And there's nothing wrong with that because I'm utilizing basic information. That that's basically covering different things. Now, this is just snippets. This is just different sections of code. Now, when we put together the code into a new system, into a new, whether we're talking about uh, a gaming program, a database program, or whatever else it is, when we move along like this and we're using these little snippets, it's a different program altogether. It's satisfying completely different needs. It's doing something different than what we did before. It's not like we're taking this entire program. Hey, I did all of this work here and I created this and I'm duplicating this by just bringing it on over to the new company. And I'm going to plagiarize completely 100% everything I did before. It doesn't work like that. It's not even going to be 90%. It's not going to be 50%. It's going to be about, eh, for me, it's probably about 30% of routines that come along from elsewhere. Others are just, uh, we, we code along, we go along and we do different things that link different sets of code that we did in the past or we found online. And it's how we assemble those together. Think of it kind of like you go into the kitchen. Yes, we can buy self-rising flour or we can make self-rising flour by mixing flour and salt and is it baking powder? Yes, baking powder. We mix those together and we get self-rising flour. It's just a particular, uh, a particular mix that comes with that. So we can just develop self-rising flour. We can tweak it a little bit. We can put in a little extra salt or a little bit of extra baking powder or a little bit of both compared to the flour. Not a whole lot because this is is all chemical reaction. But we also see that different recipes will have different little minor changes along the way. For instance, somebody's making flour tortillas. This is just a simple item. And you might use... In your flour tortilla, you might use something like olive oil, uh, regular corn oil. You might use lard. That is a very common item. That's a very authentic item for Mexico. But you also might use butter. And it's all going to be very similar. It's still going to be a tortilla, but it's going to have certain little nuances in the flavor certain little different things that are not going to be exactly the same so yes they do go along they use code from a variety of different locations and it's the assembly of that code it's bringing it all together and knowing how to read it knowing how to uh, how to debug the code how to make it fit in with all of the rest of the things Just like one of the recipes I did recently, I was baking bread, of all things. And it called for just basic, you know, the basic recipe. And I said, you know what? I'm going to amp this up. I'm going to have some fun with this. I'm going to throw in a bunch of rosemary. And I'm going to make something that's really tasty through the rosemary being just an additional additive. And it rocked. It really worked out well. So that's kind of what a programmer does. They work Kind of like a chef making the meal absolutely wonderful this is benjamin rockwell back to you hank
0: thank you benjamin use microsoft pc manager to clean up and speed up a slow computer well microsoft has such a product in beta the free utility now in beta makes it easy to remove files and free up space on your hard drive. Normally, we don't comment on beta products until they're officially released. This, however, is an exception since it's from Microsoft. PC Manager is in beta right now, and if you want to be a pioneer in testing it, all you have to do is do a search on Microsoft Space PC Space Manager but you can check it out early to see if it does the job for your computer. It runs on Windows 10 version 1809 and newer versions of the operating system. It does not run on any versions of Windows prior to Windows 10. Fair warning, its download page is in Chinese script, but the installer and app both automatically default to English. The app appears to be targeted at the PC market in China but it works perfectly well no matter where you're located, and it is indeed legit to download and use. PC Manager offers a simple user interface to help you find and fix common issues slowing down your computer. For instance, click the Startup Apps button to stop some apps from launching when your computer starts. The Process Management option lets you check the memory usage of running apps and allows you to quit these apps in one click. The most useful option is Boost, which immediately frees up RAM and clears temporary files from your computer. This is a good, if temporary, fix to speed up your computer. The app also has a Storage Manager option that lets you find and remove large files or junk files, linking to Windows built-in uninstaller and Storage Sense features, while the Security tab lets you quickly check for Windows updates and run a malware scan. Yes, these options are available in various other places on Windows, but PC Manager makes it easier to find them all at once. The application itself isn't perfect, and it could use a couple of extra features such as the option to remove the leftover files that linger even after you've uninstalled certain apps. Nevertheless, it's a good free option to speed up your slow computer or help troubleshoot a machine. Most importantly, it comes from Microsoft, which means it's unlikely to shove ads and malware onto your PC. Microsoft PC Manager brings together some disparate but related tools in one place. The terminology Gen Z refers to the generation of Americans born from 1997 to 2012. The point-and-shoot digital cameras of the early 2000s are making a comeback. In the last year, these pre-smartphone cameras have been popularized by celebrities on Instagram. This camera trend has taken off among Gen Z users on social media. On TikTok, there are over 124 million views with videos declaring that this is your sign to buy an old digital camera. There are also clips recommending the Sony Cybershot dsc W220, the Nikon Coolpix L15, the Samsung MV900F, and the Canon PowerShot SD1300 as the best secondhand digital cameras. There is even a video tutorial which has over 4.5 million views that shows TikTok users how to turn their iPhone into low quality 2000s digital camera by putting plastic wrap and lip balm on the lens when shooting with a flash on. This is not the first time Gen Z has looked to the camera technology of the past for inspiration. The resurgence in film photography and disposable cameras can be widely attributed to this younger subset of creators. Social media pushes younger users to produce original content and find new ways to express their online identity. Experimenting with retro camera technology is a perfect way to reinvent their photos. The rise of point-and-shoot digital cameras over film in recent months could also have something to do with the accessibility of this type of photography. Using a digital camera is far easier than learning to use a film camera. Moreover, film photography can quickly become a pricey endeavor with the increasing cost of developing film. While the point-and-shoot digital cameras may seem outdated and redundant, Using this pre-smartphone technology is genuinely compelling and nostalgic for Gen Zs. As a product, these digital cameras were as exciting in the early 2000s as the latest iPhone is now, and younger users are able to appreciate this fact even if it was before their time. When you're taking pictures, you can't immediately post it to social media. There's something so refreshing about taking a picture and waiting. The popularity of... The 2000 digital camera aesthetics can also be linked to the many trends that have seen Gen Z's rebelling against the highly edited picture-perfect photos commonly seen on social media. Younger users are drawn to the imperfect and authentic images taken on old point-and-shoot digital cameras. Celebrities are now deliberately shooting images through an intentionally imperfect lens to appeal to this sentiment. Then again, perhaps it was also inevitable that point-and-shoot digital cameras would make a comeback in modern society's cyclical culture. Because there was no used market for point-and-shoot cameras of 20 years ago, I've accumulated a a drawer full of them gathering dust. Well, I think I'm going to dust off my Pentax Optio S, which is a 3.2 megapixel camera that fits inside an Altoids can and put it in my shirt pocket to be used as a street camera it can still take pretty decent, acceptable postcard size pictures. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston.
1: Marty Winston joins me now, and uh, you know what, Marty? Mm-hmm. I, I I want to go back to last week. I want to uh, last week. You had mentioned, uh, or maybe I've mentioned client One of us mentioned Klein that Tools. That was last week.
2: That was before.
1: Was it? Was it earlier? Klein yeah. Tools. Okay. Uh, I so I understand you get something new from Klein Tools.
2: Well, I always am getting. <laughs> you something are, right You always from do. Klein there Tools. is that. Oh man. Let me show you something that you don't know about. Okay. The Klein Tools safety helmet. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Yes, that was, that was, yes. But really, Klein Tools, uh, reminiscent of the letter K conspiracy theorists. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, and letter K is the first, the first letter in Klein. Yes. And it's also the first letter in the name of the planet Krypton. Where Superman was born. Super. Yes. And uh, fictional character, uh, the property of some other copyright holder. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And when you think about being able to see things that ordinary people can't see. Yeah. yeah, Oh, oh, yeah, definitely. I always think of Superman. Sure. He comes to mind. So back to the other side of the K in Klein Tools, we got in their new T-1220 thermal imager for Android Devices and yes, Ooh, okay. This plugs into the USB-C. Mm-hmm, yeah, and it gives you an a heat image of what it's pointed at. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> I, I am. Uh, I am envious. Do they? I, I, I have to ask, just out of jealousy. Yeah. Do they make it for the iPhone? Yes. Ooh. <laughs> all right, so so tell me what tell me about this how how has your experience been with it? Because I know you run these things, you're through very the right ringers. Yeah. I, I think I think over the course of the last few years, uh, you, I mean you you keep coming up with all kinds of different things, and there are things we don't talk about on air. You go, yeah, that that was garbage. I don't want to even talk about it.
2: There's a lot so, of that. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're worth it. I mean, there are things that I like, too. Wait till we get to talk about the egg peeler. <laughs> the, the egg peeler? Not from Klein, so we'll, we'll, we'll cover it in <laughs> The all-new Klein egg peeler. Okay. All right, so you take the thermal imager. Yes. You put it on your phone. Yeah. You point it at, oh, I don't know, a blank wall, right? Yeah. Wall's just white, just plain white. Couldn't be any more plain than that unless... Mm-hmm. There is a difference in the temperature at different points along the wall. Is I, 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 mean, you're describing right now what you just described.
1: It's funny. My my office right here, where we've got the recording studio. Yes, everybody's seeing this for whatever crazy reason. This is, uh, it's it's upstairs, and there is there is depending on the time of year, uh, there is about a six to eight, maybe even ten degree difference warmer in here than in the hallway. Well it that'll teach you to use a hall.
2: vacuum tube microphone. <laughs> 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 it's yes. the filament. No. Yes. Yes. No, it, I think it, it's Ben's smile, that's what it, it warms it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but if there's a heat source behind a blank wall, yeah, you're yeah. going to see it. Yeah, okay. You know, if, if if there's a bad electrical connection inside the wall waiting to go pyromaniac. Yeah, okay. You're going all, right, to all, see right, it. all right. Yeah. Anything that isn't all at the same temperature. Well, you can watch it, take snapshots, do time-lapse photos, shoot Ooh, video, read temperatures, okay, okay. set alarms. Okay. All wow. cool. <laughs> nice. You can even view in grayscale a box of crayons colors version if you don't want the grayscale or in a surprisingly intuitive palette based on what iron looks like from cold to ready to melt. You can see that span of spectrum.
1: Okay, so, so so they're 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 recoloring. I mean, yeah. people don't realize this. Our our images that we have of space, of these these various, you know, whatever planet or galaxy, it's it's colored
2: or recolored by NASA to make it and look not, not more- just with not just with Tiffin filters either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for yes. your history buffs, Tiffin were glass filters that went on lenses to cause small shifts in the way the film would perceive real world colors.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so, uh, what is your favorite application of it? Is is it the walls or do you have... Uh,
2: uh, wiring, wiring overall. Yeah? Yeah, uh, there are so many places where wiring comes into uh, groups of things mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a loose connection is the source of heat. Interesting. So, knowing that, you can go in, refasten that, and eliminate what could be a huge problem later.
1: Interesting. See, now, I would use it. Um, so, south of my house, so there's uh, uh, there's whatever it is, 50, 60 feet between my house and the next house over. Mm-hmm. We we get tons of animals that go through there. Uh, we've, we've had foxes, rabbits, deer, uh, and I would be watching for those. That that would be my whole thing. I bet those just, like, light up. You want a night vision scope. That's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm a little too close to the city to do that.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Uh, it, it's, it's okay. It's a good thing. I, you know, it's good for that. I think the other thing is it, you and I both have a lot of uh, equipment and cabinets. Tons of it, yeah. And cabinets tend to collect heat in unexpected areas. Yeah, and and, and that would help for tracking it down.
1: Very, very nice idea. All righty, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, formerly known as the Westchester PC Users Group, has a presentation on uninterruptible power supplies. Thursday, November the 3rd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, November the 4th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The King's Computer Club meets Tuesday, November the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn, For more information, 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, November the 10th, at 7 p.m. Presentation is Lightning Talks. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, November the 11th, Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcast of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. Also, remember to reset your clock. Daylight time ends this Saturday. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.